RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. What is real? What is reality? I guess you might say that reality is what you experience through your senses on a timeline. There's the laws of physics. You look out into the sky at night, you see points of light. If you use a telescope, you'll see planets, a bigger telescope, galaxies, and so it goes on. Now we've got the James Webb telescope. We can see a long way. But is it real? I think the best person to ask that question of is joining me right now. And he's physicist Tom Campbell, beaming in from Alabama, USA. Tom, it's great to have you on our radio station. Welcome. Thank you, Paul. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Do you mind if I explain to the listeners how I discovered you? No, no, please go ahead. Okay, it was one of those moments I was recovering from cancer treatment. It was pretty brutal. And I was sort of on the comeback and I was out walking at night trying to get my strength and, and physical uh, health back into shape. And it was one of those beautiful um, dark nights, no moon, very clear in the sky, the Milky Way above, clearly visible, um, spanning the entire sky as it does. And I was asking fundamental questions, thinking about mortality and things like that, as you do in that situation. And, and I, I remember sort of asking the question, I think it was out loud, who are you? What are you? What is this? And it was a really sincere question. And I'm sure that's not uncommon to people that they ask those questions, maybe even in that situation, probably more in that situation. Anyway, so obviously nothing reverberated back to me at the time, but I got home and I put on my YouTube and the first selection that came up was a video from Tom Campbell explaining the quantum erasure experiment. Now, I'd never, ever searched you out before. I'd never heard of you before, but there you were as the number one choice. Does that make any sense to you? <laughs> of course it does. You were at a point in your life where you wanted to understand some of the big picture things going on in your reality. And, uh, well, I guess I was as good a lead as any. Because they pulled that's, you out. That's my. They pulled you out of the file drawer. <laughs> because that's my shtick. That's my thing: is big pictures and uh, understanding the nature of reality. So it was a good match. Now you've uh, written a, a trilogy, "My Big Toe." Toe meaning theory of everything. I have to confess, I haven't read the trilogy, but I've watched many of your videos. A theory of everything is that possible? It is possible. Now. To qualify that, it's not possible in the way that most scientists are going about it. And that is through the, uh, what, what can we say, the belief in materialism. If you start with a belief in materialism and your theory of everything is going to be a, a theory of all material reality, then you're doomed to failure. That's not going to work because that's not the way reality works. But if you have the right viewpoint about reality and understand it, then being able to come up with a, with a theory of everything is really not that hard. It's almost obvious. And there's not a lot of math involved. You know, big, big fundamental understandings should not be mathy. Uh, and you take those understandings and they have lots of logical consequences. And you can chase those logical consequences down rabbit holes with mathematics. And it gets very mathematical eventually, but that's 
not the big fundamental understanding. That's way downstream logical consequences of the fundamental, you know, ideas and, and understanding. So surely a <clears throat> a big chow theory of everything is not only possible, but you know, I've got one. How did you start on the journey that resulted eventually in the theory? Really curious about that. Well, it, uh, I had a couple of bumps that helped along the way. One was when I was in graduate school working on my PhD, I uh, ran across an ad for transcendental meditation, special rate for students. All you needed was $25 and a banana, and <laughs> you, could, you could get a mantra and learn how to meditate. And otherwise, normally I wouldn't have been too interested, but Right down at the bottom of that sign, it said one of the advantages of it was that you could get by with less sleep. So I'm a graduate student. I'm working on this big, uh, you know, Van de Graaff accelerator. And when that big mom is running, you stay there and you take data because there's times when it's not running. And then all you're doing is doing maintenance. So if it's running well, you may stay up two or three days to get your research done and being able to get by on less sleep. In other words, being able to go into a meditation state, gain a lot of rest in a very short amount of time, and then pop back and be able to function in this reality with, with very little sleep was very attractive to me. So I grabbed a banana, went to the right place, and, uh, and uh, found a mantra, found that it was just really easy for me to do. The meditation thing was just very natural for me, very simple. I got it very easily. And after about three months of doing that, just kind of playing around, I discovered that I could debug my computer code in my mind by bringing up a, if you really like, a, you know, in those days, the, all the printouts were this, this bifold, you know, big stacks of bifold printouts is what you'd get. And I'd go through that with just, would just scroll by and the lines that, in my mind, what I said, I said, the lines that have errors in them, make them red, make them stand out. Well, of course, I knew every line of code because I'd written all the code. So I was familiar with every line of it. And I saw a bunch of red lines go by and I rewound, backed up, took a look at them, went on. And to my great surprise, they actually were the errors in my code. And these are the old days when debugging was hard. You know, your input was a bunch of punch cards and you'd have four or five boxes of punch cards with like 2000 cards in each box. And these cards had to be taken out and run through the machine and put back. And sometimes they got shuffled. Sometimes they got put back in the wrong place. Sometimes the card punch didn't punch a nice neat hole where it was supposed to. It was off a little bit. There was all kinds of things that could be wrong with it, which would stop your job from running. And to be able to find those errors and fix them was like saving a month's worth of work. Now, in the old days, you didn't just punch a button, drop in your job, and three seconds later, the results come back. You'd go stand at the computer center and you'd hand in your job. And maybe by the end of that week, you'd get something back. And when you got that thing back, it didn't have a whole lot of debug code about where it failed, it just failed. 
That's all you knew about it. It just didn't run. That's all the information you got back from the computer is failed. So, you know, in the old days, debug was a difficult thing. And this was a huge advantage to be able to do that. And I thought, wow, that's crazy circumstance that I just happened to guess the right ones. So I continued with that for another couple of months and found that I indeed could find errors, key punch errors even, like I say, errors in the code. You know, you, you left out a comma someplace or left out a semicolon and uh, those errors would show up on that, on that card. So that kind of blew me away. And in my mind, I had just discovered another whole set of reality another whole piece of reality that I'm sure had always been there, but I just wasn't aware of it till then. Up until that time, like most scientists, I have this, this idea that if you can't measure it, it either isn't real or it doesn't matter. You know, and by measurement, we, we mean interact with it. You know, if there's not some way that you can physically interact with it, then it's just not real. Or if it is somehow real, then it really is irrelevant because things you can't interact with. Well, you know, what good are they? You know, what can you do with the thing you can't interact with? So that's called an operational definition of reality. If you can't operate, perform an operation on it, like measure it, then uh, it isn't real. So that defines your, your opening question. What is reality? You know, to most physicists, that's what it is to them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's what you can measure. It's an operational definition. So that was blown apart by my ability to decode this uh, stuff that was, you know, five miles away sitting in a, in a big file drawer that was specially made for boxes of cards. And I knew that it was real because I had redone this experiment a dozen times and it always worked. So it just wasn't luck. And it just wasn't my mind secretly knew and was telling me, you know, like I say, I'd find things that my mind didn't know, like key punch errors. You know, my mind had no idea about that key punch error. So I knew it was a real thing. I was getting information that should be impossible to get. So, so, so the question is, where is the information coming from? What's the ex- source? Exactly. That's what I said. What is going on here? And I was um, kind of had a a whole new mission now besides getting my PhD. And that was to figure out what this was about. What was this reality? Where did it come from? What were the limitations? What else could you do with it? Why did it allow me to do that? Um, So I got out of the university, got a job and One thing led to another, and I happened to be introduced to Robert Monroe, who lived in the same city I lived in, and he had written a book then called Journeys Out of the Body. And a bunch of people where I worked had read his book and said, let's go see this guy and see if he's real or not. So I, you know, my boss handed me the book and told me to read it. So I did, you know, and I said, well, you know, if this guy's making it all up, well, he's got a good imagination and, uh, you know, he's making some money on a book. You know, that's one possibility. And other than that, you know, maybe it's real. And if it's real, then I'd be interested because I've got this other real problem in the back of my mind about, you know, debugging my software that uh, has my interest. 
So we did go see Bob Monroe, and he had just uh, built a building that was going to be a lab for studying consciousness. And it was a build it and they will come kind of a thing. He didn't have any plans for who would work in it or what they do or anything else. He just knew he needed to build the building. So myself and, a, and another guy uh, that worked with me, Dennis Menerick, he was an electrical engineer. I'm the physicist, so we made a good team. So we agreed with Bob that we would you know, do experiments, man his lab and, and um, do whatever he needed there. Uh, if he would teach us to go out of body, if he would teach us to, to experience this, because we both knew that if we were just working with him, well, it would all stay theoretical. But if it was our own personal experience, now we could, we could go someplace with that. So he agreed, and we started going out to see Bob, you know, a couple of nights a week uh, throughout the week. And that continued for, you know, five, seven years. And it got to where we're putting in like 20, 15 to 20 hours a week with Bob and Roe, you know, and 40 to 45, 50 hours a week at our jobs. So that was, uh, you know, we, we did that for, for some time. Being so efficient on sleep would have helped you with that too. <laughs> yes, it did. So in any case, uh, uh, that was how a, you know, a nice physicist like me got involved with things like consciousness and out of body. And my mind was open because of that little experience I had with debugging in my, in my mind. So my mind was open, but I, you know, and Dennis too, being an electrical engineer, we were both kind of hard cases. You know, we had grown up with materialism and it's like, you know, we need to see the, we need to see the beef. We need to really understand what's going on here and figure this out. So Dennis, being the double E, he helped build equipment and design, and we started making this lab into a real lab. And I was the theory guy because that's what physicists do is try to figure out, you know, how reality works. And uh, it's been a long trip, been learning ever since, Paul. You know, it had the, the education hasn't stopped yet, and I don't think it, it ever will. But I got to a point about... 35 years later, from the point that I just described, 35 years later, I thought I understood reality well enough to write it down. And I started writing it down. And when I did, I realized there were holes in it. You know, there were things that I kind of glossed over. Because once you write, it forces you to be a lot more concise and logical. You can just think things. And if it's a little fuzzy, you kind of say, yeah, well, okay, <laughs> you go on. But when you write things down, you know, it has to make good logical sense. So I learned a lot in the process of writing because there were problems there I had to solve, logical things that didn't make sense that I hadn't thought of. And so eventually, five years later, I come out the other side with these three books. It's a trilogy called My Big Toe. And I called it My Big Toe, not because I was so proud to have written it, but I called it My Big Toe because it's based on my personal experience. And I mentioned it often in the book that it should just be used as a, as like a, a, a starting place for your own big toe. You know, don't believe anything I tell you. Don't believe anything you read in that book. Belief is the enemy. You don't want to believe anything. You need to have this as an experience of your own that you get to test. Otherwise, you're stuck with this, well, I have to believe it or not believe it. And neither one of those will take you any place important. You know, 
But if it's yours and you've experienced it, now that's a growth step. You, your, your world gets bigger and deeper, but it doesn't get bigger and deeper just because you read some book that you know, says things. That's, that doesn't really en- enlarge your world much. It just maybe enlarges the possibilities, but it doesn't enlarge your experience of what's out there. Now, you mentioned the word consciousness before, and I want to talk about that in just a moment. But just to sort of set the table for that, um, this question that that you've addressed or this whole concept of what is reality that you've addressed and, Mm -hmm. and unpicked for yourself in your trilogy kind of came to light in the early 20th century, right, with that famous experiment, the double slit experiment. Would that be one of the most crucial physics experiments in the history of mankind? Because it seems to me that it is. It is, absolutely. Science has come across, you know, several big pointers pointing us to what reality actually is. And mostly we look at them and, and ignore them. But the double slit was one of those. It was the first time that physicists had, had uh, come across an experiment. And of course, in physics, experiments define truth. That's how you know what facts are. Things aren't facts until you've done an experiment. And that experiment can be done by anybody anywhere, and they get the same results. Indeed, multiple people have to do them in multiple places before the physicists will accept that that's a fact. Well, the double slit experiment, do you want me to describe it very shortly for your listeners so they'll yeah, get an I think idea so, what it can, is? If you can encapsulate it in reasonable time, because it, yeah, I mean, I've tried I, to explain it to people and it takes me ages. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can explain it pretty quickly. Basically, there was a few facts that were already on the board. And one was in the, the physics of optics. Okay, You could shine a light. And if this light was far away from these two holes, you have two holes someplace or two slits. So you have this big piece of barrier, you know, make it cardboard or something. And then you put two little slits in it. And if you stand back and shine a light at this, what will happen on the wall on the other side of those slits, you know, the light goes through the slits and hits a wall, say six feet behind the slits. Well, what happens is that if this light is coherent, which means it's far enough away that it's, it's more or less in phase, what happens is that you get an interference pattern. Some of the light goes through, you know, one slit, the other light goes through the other slit. And those two waves, as the science of uh, optics said, light is a wave. And those two waves interact just like any two waves. And that is if the path difference from one slit to a point on the wall and the difference in that distance from the other slit to the point on the wall, if those two distances differed by a whole wavelength, then the waves would overlap when they got there. If those two distances differed by half a wavelength, then they'd be out of phase when they got to that point on the wall. Okay, so when they're in phase, you get even a brighter light. It adds when they're out of phase, they cancel each other, you get a dark spot. So there's some pattern on that wall that is the locus of all the points where The difference is some integer number of wavelengths, path difference, and some locus of points where all the uh, path differences are, you know, out of phase, half a wavelength. 
So when you look at those, the ones that are in phase should be light and the ones that are out of phase that are dark. And when they do that, they get an interference pattern. Now you can do the same thing with water. You know, you get a lake and you can put up a big board someplace if you like, and you can drop a rock in that makes a splash. And if you do that far enough away, such that the waves get to each slit at about the same time, you'll see that same pattern in the water. It's just the nature of waves. They call it superposition. Waves from different sources, if they're in phase, they add. If they're out of phase, they subtract. All right. So it's a simple idea. So in those days, light was a wave. That was a fact. Now, the other fact is, is that Einstein saw, and, and uh, he actually got a Nobel for this, he noticed in the photoelectric effect that light seems to be a chunk of momentum. It has momentum. It can deposit that momentum and cause things to happen like any other thing with momentum. So he said, hey, it looks like light's a particle not a wave. Waves don't carry momentum that go chunk when they hit something and add, you know, momentum to it. That's not the way waves work. So he said light's a particle. And they looked at the optics and said, well, that doesn't make sense because we know light's a wave. So I know, let's do an experiment. Let's do a double slit experiment. And we will put just one particle at a time shoot it at the slits, you know, toward the slits, just one particle will send at a time. And that particle will have to go through one slit or another, and we'll see where it lands. We'll see what happens. And of course, what everybody expected to happen is that those little particles of light would all pile up behind each slit. If it went through slit A, it'd pile up behind slit A. You get a pile of particles behind slit A. And if it went through slit B, you get a pile of particles behind slit B. That's what they expected, because that's what particles do. Newton told us that they travel in straight lines unless affected by some external force, right? One of Newton's laws. So these things obeyed Newton's laws. They were just little particles. And everybody knew that these photons couldn't interact with each other. That was the name of the light particle, it was a photon, that they couldn't interact with each other. In other words, if you had a flashlight and billions of photons are spilling out of this flashlight, those photons don't interact. It's just billions of independent photons doing what photons do. It's not like some of them make friends and bunch up over here and some of them don't like each other and they pull away. You know, there's no interaction between them in any sense. So just firing one at a time should eventually build up that pattern that you'd get if you fired a million. It just does what it does. The fact that you've got a million in there doesn't matter. Each one is just doing what it would do if there was ball by itself. So those two facts were in conflict with each other. So they did this experiment, and what they found out is that when they just put the particles through, okay, one at a time, the particles arrange themselves on the wall behind the slits in an interference pattern. Not in the pattern uh, of the slits. Not in the pattern of the slits. They didn't pile up behind the slits. They created an interference pattern. So there were parts where the wavelength was such that it was, you know, a whole wavelength difference. They piled up there. If it had been a wave, you know, if it had been an optics experiment, not single photons, but the optics experiment, it got the same result as the optics experiment. 
exact same result. So these electrons, one at a time, would just hit that wall, and they didn't hit it in a pattern, like they didn't draw the, uh, you know, the wave pattern from one side to the other. They just randomly would hit someplace on the wall. And one would hit here, and one would hit there, and one would hit someplace else. But eventually, once you put in enough particles in there, the pattern emerged, and that pattern was the exact same as the wave pattern. So it already violated one of the laws of physics, and that is there was no force operating on it from the outside, and it somehow magically moved itself around, and not only did it move itself around magically, but it put itself in a pattern as if it was a wave. So physicists were very confused about that double slit experiment because it was an experiment. It was a fact. The experiment was done by other people, other places. You know? So now you got a fact that has a, a conflict, a logical conflict in it. So they said, okay, well, let's see what's going on at those slits. Let's take a look at what's going on in slits. So they have some clever way to determine whether that particle went through slit A or slit B. Well, they did that. So they ran the experiment. They said, ah, this one went through A, that one went through B, and so on. And when we were all done, all the particles piled up behind the slits, just like what they expected the first time. The well, particles just went through the slits, and they landed just behind the slit. And so you had these two piles of particles, one behind each slit. That's what they expected. So now it looked like they were particles. But you stop measuring which slit they went through, and the wave pattern comes back. So that's, so the, that's the difference. It's measuring It's knowing. It's knowing, the information. It's the information of which slit that the particle goes through. That's the key thing. And that's why this became such a big experiment. And people would say, well, if the information is the key, of course, they said, well, in the act of measuring it, you have to touch it somehow. You have to put energy on it. Otherwise, you can't measure it. So in the act of measuring it, you've kind of screwed up the experiment. You've, you've done something different to it because you measured it. And in that measurement, you had to affect the particle. And that's what's causing this thing. Well, of course, nobody could come up with any idea why that would cause the particles to you know, go in straight lines when before they were going into a, a wave pattern. But that was the theory until... Actually, not that long ago, in uh, 1999, just before 2000, some clever physicists came up with a way to do the double slit that was touchless. No energy touched the particles at all. The way they measured the which way data was from an entangled twin of the particle that went through the double slits. So they had an entangled particles. One of them went directly to the double slits. The other one went on a different path. So they could measure the which way data by that. Okay. So they had the which way data down with the entangled particle. Okay. So now it was touchless. No energy had touched the particle that went to the double slits. And the exact same thing happened as before. If you have no idea what the which way data is, which way data is which slit did it go through? If you have no idea what the which way data is, you get this pretty interference pattern. If you know what the which way data is, they pile up behind the slits. So that is the double slit. It doesn't have anything to do with the energy that was imparted to those electrons. Now, the physicists at the time agreed that that was the case. 
they said, yeah, we're not touching them with anything that would make any difference. You know, that's not the answer. But because there was no other answer, <laughs> that was the answer a lot of people clung to. Oh, it's that touch that's the problem. Again, the physicists thought, nah, that doesn't make sense. But okay, it's the only thing we've got. But that got erased. And that isn't the problem, obviously. Then we went on to, uh, dare I take your, your listeners one more step. To yeah, the why delayed, not? Why we're here. The, go, to the delayed, the delayed eraser. Okay, now the delayed eraser is the same setup with those entangled particles. Okay, except the particle, once it's entangled particles are made, one goes to the double slit right away because the slits aren't far away. Say so they're only, let's say, a meter away. Now, 10 meters away, you're going to take these entangled particles and you're going to find out which slit they came through. And the reason you can find that out is because if they went through this slit, they're coming from a little different place than if they went from that slit. So you can just look at the difference of the two different paths that they would take. And if they go to this path, then they had to come through this slit. If they go to that path, they have to come through the other slit. You see, so you just look at where they go. So you start measuring them. And now you're going to measure them now at 10 meters. So the measurement of the which way data is going to be after the actual double slit experiment's done after it's over. So now they're going to look at it, and sure enough, it works just the way it had before. You know, every time they have which way data, they end up with piles of particles behind each slit, and whenever they don't, they get the double slit. But now they said, let's be clever. We're going to erase that data. We've got those entangled particles, and they've got the which way data, but we're going to erase it. We're going to take that data away. We're not going to measure it and see which one it went through. We're going to take it away, but we're not going to measure it. We're going to interact with it after the fact that it's been done. All right. So now what they do is a particle would come through. One of the tangled particles would go to the double slit and hit that right away. The other particles would come, one showing this path, one showing that path, but they erase them. So they erase all these particles. So now what happens is that they don't know, of course, what any of the which way data is. And because they don't know, they get this nice pattern. Okay, so, so it just keeps reoccurring the same result through multiple uh, progression of the original experiment. And, and that led to huge debate amongst the giants of physics, right? Mm -hmm. To a point where I think Einstein was on one side and was it Bohr, the, the other physicist, was on well, the other. And, and the, this was an epic debate battle, it, it, wasn't it? It was, but that actually took place much earlier. That was back when quantum physics was still being ah, right. gotcha. was still being put together. That did I skipped around a little bit in the in the in time slot here yeah. talking about these things. But anyway, what happened there was they realized that and this was uh, Heisenberg and and uh, Schrodinger and Planck. Einstein was also, you know, kept plugged into this, who was a Danish guy. Um, Bohr, was it? You know, in, yeah, Bohr in Copenhagen. So you had all these, these smart guys, and they looked at, well, how can we mathematically model that, that what's going on? How can we make a, you know, how can we make science out of this? Okay, it's a nifty thing. Now, let's turn it into science. So they realized that they could make predictions if they considered that that particle was not really a particle, 
but a probability wave. Now, probability wave is not a physical thing. That's math. That's just mathematics. But they said, okay, but we can get the right answer if we just assume that the particle is, is a probability wave. And then people said, well, you know, this only works with light. If you did something else, if we put electrons in that or buckyballs, which are a carbon atom that's got you know, 60 carbon atoms in it, it wouldn't work. Well, it did. So they did it with electrons, and they did it with buckyballs, and they've done it with big, fat 200-atom molecules, and it works exactly the same way all the time with anything. So then they realized that in order to, to be able to predict where a particle is going to be, they needed to start with an assumption that there are no particles. There's only protoparticles. And there's only a probability that these protoparticles will be anywhere at any particular time. And if you do the math, you'll find what these probabilities are. And when you make the measurement, you'll get a real particle somewhere. And that came to this little phrase called, when the probability wave collapses, you know, it collapses to a physical particle. Right. So you've got this probability wave, and you make a measurement, and if a particle is going to be there, the probability wave collapses to a physical particle. And of course, physicists slap themselves upside the head and say, what the heck does that mean? And okay, that was 100 years ago. This was in the early 1920s. Well, now we're in the 2020s. It's been a century. And what happened was in the beginning, they were very excited about, wow, this is going to be the biggest thing ever, you know, reality is really just probability. And other people saying, no, nah, that can't possibly be the case. We know it's material stuff. And eventually they gave up. They tried everything and they couldn't come up with any kind of a theory, any kind of an idea or perspective that let them explain that. It just wasn't there. So then instead of saying, we just can't figure this out, they said, oh, nobody can figure it out. It's not figure outable. This is just a mystery that will never, you know, it's the old shut up and calculate thing. You know, don't ask. Asking is just going in the wrong direction. Nobody will ever know. It's one of those mysteries of, of the universe that's not meant for us to know. So they, <laughs> they took the low road and uh, said, well, it's not our problem for not figuring it out. It's a, it's a, it can't be figured out. They forgot about it and they said it can't be done. So it's just impossible. Quantum physics is just weird physics. It's yeah. not like other physics. It's weird physics and you get weird results because of that. <laughs> now, that's kind of where quantum physics is today. So that double slit is a very dramatic experiment. And it was the very first time that an experiment, which means the world, you know, reality, gave us a result in an experiment that told us your reality is not material. Because, because it can't be if that interference pattern falls, because that is the expression of probability. Exactly. Physical yeah. reality, and it seems to be a default. Exactly. So some physicists made up all kinds of crazy ideas. Well, the particle splits in two and goes through both slits. Oh, the... Um, the probability wave is a real physical wave. That probability is a physical 
thing, you know, and well, all of that was just nonsense, of course. This particle didn't split in two and go through both slits. To, it would be know, harder, and, harder to explain that, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, uh, yes, it would be. You know, the mathematics is not physical thing. You know, it's not a physical thing. You know, it's an intellectual thing. Anyway, so a, a lot of goofy ideas, you know, were spawned because physicists were just stumped. They didn't know. And they're no better position right now, except... They have learned through doing probably a hundred variations on that double slit, you know, doing all sorts of other kinds of experiments with it. They have come to the conclusion that this is a, how do they call it? A um, computed reality. Okay. Well, they don't actually say that. I shouldn't put that word in their mouth. They say that it's an information-based reality. It's an information-based reality, but what that means is that it's a computed reality. Reality is made out of information. Well, that means it's computable. An information system can compute information. So anyway, so we, we got to the point that a lot of physicists, at least the atomic physicists and the quantum physicists will say, yeah, our reality is really information-based, not material-based. It's not about stuff. It's not about mass. It's about information. Well, what they don't do is take it any further because they just don't know where to go after that. You know, okay, that's nice, but what information and where does it come from? And why does it look like this physical world? And you see, they don't know that. So they quit there and refuse to go on. But if they just took the next couple of logical steps, they'd find that if it's information-based, that means it's computable. If it's computable, that means that it is like a simulation. If hmm. it's a simulation, well, another name for that is it's a virtual reality. Uh, it's an information-based virtual yeah. reality, you see. So that makes sense. And many physicists have gone that route, but they look at it then and say, eh, no, that's crazy. That doesn't, you know, this, me, you know, my body, this physical world is, is a virtual reality. And they stopped there because that seems so impossible. Well, well so that's it, a product it, of the immersiveness of the reality being so all-encompassing, right? Yeah. I mean, it's very hard to, to break out of that. The yeah, question it's really, is, really hard, yes. Yeah. Scientists have had a really hard time trying to see what the, what the perspective is that actually makes that make sense. Two questions come up. Um, number one is if it's computed, what's computing it, and where is that computation taking place? Um, and the role, speaking of the double slit experiment, the the knowing of positions, collapsing that that waveform to particle, mm -hmm. what system could operate that? Yeah. Okay, I can answer those questions for you. Um, that's not necessarily a short thing to do, but I'll try to make it as short as possible. First, rather than just blurt out the answer and have everybody shake their head and say, that sounds crazy, I'll try to work up to it so it doesn't sound quite as crazy. And that is, if we think of this as a virtual reality, how can, how can we make sense out of that for this Venus reality here? All right. Well, the first thing we could say is, well, let's look at the virtual realities that we know about. You know, World of Warcraft, The Sims, uh, No Man's Sky, you know, these are virtual realities that we, that we play in. So how do they work? 
it turns out that virtual realities all work the same way. So if you understand how they work, then you'll get some insight into how this one must work if this one is a virtual reality. So the way they work is that there is a computer. That computer creates the virtual reality and with information. It sends that information to a player. That player gets that information and interprets that information to be this reality, this virtual reality. The player makes all the choices for the avatars. Avatars are just computed. And the player makes all the choices for the avatars, you know, fight, run away, do whatever you're going to do, you know, buy a beer at the bar, whatever's going on in that game. And the computer then takes that and puts that into motion in the virtual reality and also calculates all the consequences of that. You know, if the person fights, well, now there's a fight consequence. If it runs away, well, there isn't a fight consequence. There's a running away and being chased consequence. So it does that. So that's how the reality works. And from the viewpoint of the avatars, the computer has to be non-physical. The computer can't be inside the virtual reality. It has to be outside the virtual reality. And the player can't be inside the virtual reality. It has to be outside the virtual reality. And the player and the computer have to be in the same reality because they're constantly talking to each other. They've got a, a data stream running between them. So that tells us some things about the nature of a virtual reality. And all virtual realities have to work that way. This is just the fundamental logic of a virtual reality. So what does that tell us right away? It tells us that we, the choice maker, if this body of mine is computed in a virtual body, then who's making the choices? Hmm. Has to be somebody or something that's non-physical to us. And the computer has to be non-physical. Well, it's my consciousness. Consciousness uh, is making the choices. Consciousness is awareness with a choice. That's a simple definition for consciousness. It's awareness with a choice. So that awareness is looking at this. It gets a data stream and it says, oh, my character is doing this or that. I want him to do this other thing. So it tells, sends the data back up to the computer and the computer you know, comes and renders it the way the player. Like wanted. as simple as I'm, I want to pick up that cup. Yeah. Exactly. So your consciousness says, I want my avatar to pick up that cup. So he sends that up to the computer. The computer now draws the avatar picking up the cup. Okay. Now, if the consciousness says, I want my player to jump 20 feet in the air. Well, the computer says, sorry, can't do that. That's out of, you know, that's out of character for the, for the rule set that runs this virtual reality. Every virtual reality, hadn't mentioned that yet, needs a rule set a rule set that defines things you can do and the things you can't do, right? So in our virtual reality, the rule set's what we call science. Physics, that's what scientists do. They dig out the rules in the rule set. Is that okay. where mathematics comes from then? Could you argue that? Because people well, wonder, what did we discover it or was it always there or, or did we create it? Yeah. Is that the, the rule set you're talking about? Is it under? Yeah, basically it's the rule set is expressed mathematically. That's why mathematics seems to underlie, you know, all the physical stuff going on, you know, we can come up with mathematical models that uh, describe our reality pretty well, because this is a computed reality based on mathematical models. So well, yeah, it must it, be it such a, a high resolution model, because you know, you can fire off a rocket and send it to Pluto within meters and it arrives. Sure, it can be as high resolution. Matter of fact, scientists now peg the resolution of this reality is what they call the Planck length and the Planck time. 
they're very small numbers. You know, the Planck time is about 10 to the minus 44 seconds, and uh, the Planck length is about 10 to the minus, I don't know, 35 or something meters, right? That's Hard minus 44 and minus, you know, these are, these are very small numbers, you know, so, but now that would be the ultimate resolution. I'm talking with U.S. physicist Tom Campbell about his trilogy, My Big Toe, My Theory of Everything. Soon you're going to hear him talk about IUOCs, Individuated Units of Consciousness. So when you hear him say IOUC, that's what he's talking about. Let me take one more step. So if I'm kind of leading up to if our reality is information based, then it's computable. Then it could be a virtual reality, right? If it's a virtual reality, we have these facts about the player's non-physical, the computer's non-physical. The player is our consciousness, so what's the computer? It's got to be in the same reality as the player because those two have to be in the same reality frame because they're communicating with each other. So the computer's consciousness too. So now we come up with, a, with an idea that what's fundamental in this reality is consciousness. Consciousness is the fundamental thing. Okay, let's talk about consciousness and information systems for a second before I go down that route. And that is, consciousness is an information system, right? It's awareness with a choice. Well, because I say choice, that means free will choice, because if that's the only kind of choice there is. If there's no free will, there is no choice. So awareness with a choice. What is awareness? Awareness is about information. Awareness is about getting data, right? What you're aware of, it's about information. And it's about processing that information so that you understand it. And it has some feedback in it. You know, you have to remember what it is you processed in that information. Otherwise, everything you process is, is always, you know, the first. So these are the attributes of basically awareness. It takes in data. It processes about that data. It decides whether that data is good for me or bad for me. So this is what Consciousness is awareness with a choice. So awareness is really about information and information processing. So let's just model consciousness as an information processing system. Okay, so we'll just say consciousness is an information processing system. And this information processing system, what motivates it? What makes it go? You know, what winds it up? Well, if you have a system and all the bits are random, you don't have any information. All the bits are random, no information. If you order a couple of those bits, that creates information. I ordered bit, now I can make those ordered bits mean something. Oh, these ordered bits stand for this, and those ordered bits stand for that. I can create language, I can do all kinds of things once I start ordering bits. I can make math, well, here's two bits, and over here's three bits, and oh, I can put those two bits with those three bits, and I get five bits. You see, once you can order things, there's lots and lots of things you can do with those bits. So, what is ordering? It's lowering entropy. If you have a system, and that system lowers its entropy, it does that by organizing. That's randomness, isn't it? Entropy. Yeah. The more entropy, the more random state yeah, you The have. more entropy you have, the more disorder you have. Or disorder, yeah. So, if the maximum entropy you can have, the maximum disorder you can have is all the bits are random. Entropy is about a particular system. Entropy is not just a thing, it's, it's about a system. It's a, it's a thing that describes a system. So now we're talking about the system of consciousness. 
Consciousness is an information system because I define it as awareness with a choice. Awareness is about information. Information systems evolve by lowering their entropy, by making order out of the chaos, giving that order meaning and making other things and letting there be meaning between them and so on. So entropy gets reduced, consciousness evolves. Consciousness is driven to lower its entropy. That's its driving force. Okay, now that means that it's evolving, it's changing, it's ordering more bits, it's understanding more, it is doing math, it is counting, it's doing other things, it's learning. Okay, so awareness can learn because awareness gets in information, judges that information relative to its goal, and in this case, its goal is to lower its entropy. So now it does things that lower entropy rather than does things that raise entropy. And if it does things that raise entropy, it goes, oops, going the wrong direction. Let's that go and does the other thing. So now we have evolution chugging along. Which is it a evolves. perfectly natural concept, isn't it? Even Perfectly natural concepts, yeah. yes. So now we have evolution, and evolution just means that it's going to try everything, and the stuff that lowers entropy, it keeps. The stuff it raises, it throws away. That's just the way that works. So the system evolves and evolves, and it's lowering its entropy and lowering its entropy, becoming more sophisticated, and it gets to a point where it slows down. And that's because it's hard for it to come up with any more novelty in as far as the ways that it organizes itself. It's kind so of- So we can imagine that as a blob of singular consciousness, which has sort of got to the limits. Yeah, it's got kind of its of limits- it's operating of, in that mode. Yeah, it's operating in that mode. So it gets to that point and okay, it's still evolving, but it's slowly and it's around the edges and it isn't really making leaps and bounds anymore like it was back in the good old days. <laughs> so it does what everything else does when it runs into that spot. You know, what did cells do when they ran into that spot? You had single cells, bacteria. They're single cells. There's only so much they could do. Yeah, yeah. well, they made multi-celled things, right? Mm -hmm. They split. And they said, oh, now we got two cells. Now we got six cells. We can all work together and do a, a more stuff than we and could do before. And the options explode with that, don't they? Yeah, they explode. So suddenly, uh, I can't think of anything else to do comes to... There's so much to do, it explodes. So what happens is this big monolithic consciousness says, I need to create subsets of myself. And if you think of this consciousness as a big information system, that's like creating, uh, what do we call it? Virtual machines inside the main machine, right? I don't know if you're a computer. Yeah, yep. um, vir virtual, virtual processes within, you know, one machine. Yeah. Yeah. So you have a big concept. machine. So that what all that is, is a concept that says you have a great big computer. It can make virtual smaller computers inside of itself. It takes a piece of its processing, a piece of its memory and whatever, and it makes a smaller subset of itself that's functional as a computer. So those are called virtual machines. And we do this, you know, all the time. We have virtual machines inside, inside big machines. That's how big mainframes can service hundreds of people all at the same time, because we, we can do things like that. So anyway, that's what it does. It decides it needs to create something that it can interact with that is unique, not just itself. So what it has to do is it has to create this subsets of itself and give them free will to make their own choices. Uh, so that's where free will actually comes into well, it. You, well, it's, it's, it's not where it comes into it. It came into it earlier on because consciousness itself, in order to make a choice, had to have free will. Okay, but every parcel or individuated 
part of it needs to have the ability it needs to, to have free will too yeah 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 because if each piece didn't have free will well then it's just it talking to itself again it doesn't have anything new the newness comes from the interaction between things that are independent you see that that's what creates newness so it starts creating subsets of itself that also have free will and now these things interact not only with each other but back with the system and you've got this large system going now I call them individuated units of consciousness. Okay. Now that's what I am. And that's what you are. And that's the player of all these humans are these individuated units of consciousness. So, so far we have this, this larger consciousness system. It's uh, plateaued in its evolution of learning its entropy. It's created subsets of itself that have free will. He's letting them all interact with each other to create more possibilities. And there are, because now you have all kinds of things that have their own experience base that's different than anybody else's experience base, and that creates more possibilities. So that goes on for a while, and then it slows down again, because what we've created here is really the first virtual reality is when you have a rule set by which all the people that are in that virtual reality have to play. That then becomes a virtual reality that they all obey this rule set. So the first virtual reality was one where the rule set was just communication protocols. So all these bits and pieces of consciousness could communicate with each other. All right, now visualize this as a big chat room. There's this huge chat room with hundreds of thousands of chatters in it, but that's it. There's no more rules than that. It's just, here's how you communicate and that's it. Well, that was good for a while because there were a lot of new ideas got figured out there because you had a lot of independent thoughts that one would trigger another to do something else that would trigger something else and you know how it is when you get a bunch of people together you can you can get a lot of interesting things going so it got to the point though that that leveled off and the system says well the problem we have here is we need a rule set that creates more interesting and more um, growth producing choices. The choices here, what am I going to communicate? You know, who am I going to listen to and what am I going to say and who am I going to send it to? Those are basically all the choices to you've got. To ultimately organize information in a particular way. That's the goal, right? Yeah. Well, that's what they're doing now. They're just sharing information, growing, just taking up the possibilities of things that they might create together kind of a thing. And that stalls out. So the system says, I need to create another virtual reality that has a much tighter rule set that defines interactions between everything. I need a virtual reality that has consequences. Chat rooms don't have much consequences. So the choices that my individuated units of consciousness are making are kind of inconsequential choices. So what? I say this, I say that, I listen to this person, I listen to that person. There's no big issues coming out of those consequences. They're trivial consequences. So it needs something where it's very interactive, where what I do affects you and what you do affects me. And it's very interactive. And now our choices start to uh, become more meaningful. So it says, I've got to create a virtual reality, a rule set that does that, that my individual units of consciousness can play with. So it says, well, what we'll start out with is a set of initial conditions and a rule set. It does that. It says, all right, hits the run button, and that initial conditions change according to the rule set. 
and that goes a little while and you know it fuzzes out it doesn't last too long it's not stable so well, let's adjust the initial conditions let's adjust the rules we'll do it again and it keeps doing that over and over again trial and error until it gets a virtual reality created by a rule set and initial conditions that can last long enough to produce through its own evolution inside this virtual reality to produce avatars that are worth making choices for. So this virtual reality, you know, you heard the virtual reality, it's the big bang. That's the initial right. conditions or the, or the ball of plasma, high temperatures, high pressures. And the rule set is what we call science physics. So, so the big bang doesn't need to physically exist because people conceive it's it that big, way. It's the big it's digital big bang. bang. Of, yeah, it's a digital big bang. It's a big digital bang. It's being run in a computer. So that, and that doesn't occupy any space. And that answers that question of oh, no. it being a zero point origin. No, it doesn't occupy any space at all. This is just inside consciousness and consciousness is not physical. Consciousness doesn't have place in it, it has time, but it doesn't have space. It's not a part of it. So it does this virtual reality and it comes up with this three dimensional, you know, set of rules and it goes and it chugs out this reality, which is what we call our physical universe. And it had to do it because the players in the big chat room weren't evolving very much. But now in this virtual reality, first of all, the consciousness plays all the parts as they evolve. You know, you evolve again, you got single cell things, multi-celled things, you jellyfish, fish, you know, lizards, and eventually, uh, you know, have something like us, you know, comes up out of the muck. And it looks at all that stuff and, and uh, is trying to, it has to be stable long enough for it to naturally evolve avatars that have meaningful choices, significant choices. So it does that. And then the system says, all right, uh, you IUOC, I'm going to send the data that I use to move this particular whatever through my virtual reality game. I'm going to give that data to you and let you make the choices. Instead of me making all the choices for everything, I'm going to give that one to you. And that's, you the, make, that's the individuated. Yeah. So I, now. now the individuated player now has to, you log on and make all the choices for that one. And you log on and make all the choices for this one and so on. So the IUOC is logged on to these, these virtual avatars called humans got to the point where they were able to make really meaningful choices. They were able to do a lot of things build a lot of things, had a lot of potential. So that was a good choice. So then they start logging on and pretty soon you've got all of these IUOCs all playing the part of the player for that particular, for that particular avatar. Okay. Now what's really going on is they're trying to evolve. They're trying to make choices that lower entropy. But what we've created to this point, and this is a really important point, what we've created to this point is a social system. Even the big chat room is a social system. But now particularly when we start populating this virtual reality that evolved from a virtual Big Bang, we have a social system of interaction between things. And now between a lot of humans that all have players, we've got the social system going. Now, how do you lower entropy in a social system? 
if you think here's the social system and give you 10,000 people and make that a, give you a certain amount of resources, go be social and do something with these resources and see what happens. And the free will. Yeah, and they, they all and they have free will to do what they want. And I have another 10,000 over here, and I give them exactly the same resources and tell them to go do something. Now, let's say one side, I'm going to call the love side. And what they do is all their choices have to do with caring about each other. They cooperate, they share, they work together. On the other side, we have the fear side. And the fear side, oh, I need those resources. I want to get as much as those resources for me because having resources is a good thing. And they fight, they uh, cheat, they steal. Eventually, you end up with uh, just a few of them being at the top of the pile and everybody else, you know, being serves at the bottom. So I could go through that with a lot more detail in the logic, but the low entropy interactions in a social system are about caring and sharing. That makes the social system work better. If it's about fear, on the other hand, if there's fear, well, there's no trust. If there's no trust, then, you know, you're, you're on your own. Well, okay, so me and some of my buddies, we can gang up and now we can take stuff away from those other people who are by themselves. Well, then pretty soon they're going to gang up too. And you start getting gangs and warlords and, you know, you turn into that sort of thing. Whereas where everybody's trying to make sure that everybody else gets as much as possible, then it all works out fine. So those are the two things. And it's a love side and a fear side. So the fact is that in a social system, which is what consciousness now has become, the way to lower entropy is by becoming love, by becoming cooperative and caring with each other. That's the point. That's what these little pieces of consciousness have to learn. And they were having a hard time learning that in a big chat room because there just wasn't that much interaction going on in that you, chat room. You could room. say anything you want, or you could communicate anything you want yeah. with no consequences whatsoever, really. Yeah, pretty much. So there really wasn't a whole lot of traction there for becoming more caring or sharing. So the entropy just wasn't reducing the way it should be. Now we have this entropy reduction trainer, virtual reality, and these pieces of consciousness can get in there and make choices for these avatars. And they're trying to make choices such that they'll lower their entropy. Because now each one of these IUOCs has its own entropy from you know, its own choices, plus it's part of a system entropy. So the system has its entropy, each individual has their entropy, but as the piece parts, as the IUOCs evolve and lower their entropy, then the whole thing's entropy lowers because the piece parts are part of the whole thing. So, Which is the goal, right? That's the goal. Yeah. That's the ultimate goal, lowering yeah. okay. that Lowering the entropy of the whole thing. So you can see this whole scheme of creating the virtual reality and letting the peace parts play is all part of the larger conscious system strategy to lower its own entropy. Not only is all these individuals are lowering their entropy, but it gets its system entropy lowered as they lower their individual entropy. So it's all part of its strategy to evolve. All right, so now that sets the kind of, of where we are. Who are we? We are the players. Now, a player actually takes a part, it partitions off a part of itself, which I call the free will awareness unit. And this free will awareness unit is what actually logs on. And the reason it does this is because learning how to cooperate and care is not such an easy thing to do, particularly in this early virtual reality game, because it was a violent, you know, it, was, it wasn't that easy to survive. It was a very rough game with a lot of violence in it. We were not the apex predator. We were quite a ways down on the chain. 
we were monkeys out of the trees walking around on two feet and there was you know a lot of things that would get us and of course we get each other you know we are our own worst enemy you know people taking away stuff from other people so it was a lot different than just being in a chat room and we can go through lots and lots of detail but basically that derives the basic sense of the reality now i can make a few observations here like you know we in physics have this thing as i think it's called the anthropic principle something like that it says there's there's like this small set of constants that if we would change any one of them like gravitation is one of them if we would change any one of them in the ninth decimal place the whole universe would crash it wouldn't be stable anymore it would all just fall apart and uh, we wouldn't be here well that is a mystery because how come there's these five or six numbers that all seem to be perfectly tuned they're all independent numbers and they're all tuned just perfectly out the nine decimal places with each other how did that come about wow what good luck because if we didn't get all those numbers just tuned just like that this universe wouldn't exist isn't that interesting well it's easy to understand in this model that i'm telling you that's the trial and error you know as he made that thing it said you know okay big digital bang take seven thousand well, okay, right. let's, Maybe let's turn gravity up a little let's turn this other thing down a little bit all right seven thousand and one you know so those numbers did indeed get tuned by the system as it developed a virtual reality that would last long enough be stable enough to create interesting avatars for the iucs to play so can i just ask you because 13 billion or 13.8 billion years on current measurement since that uh, that big bang that we've been talking about that's a long time where does time sit in this is there as much time for the system as it needs okay. or does it create its own time or is time something outside of that again no okay time what about time and where does time come from well so we have a virtual reality here which we call our physical universe and that is a virtual reality created by a consciousness right so we have a subset of consciousness configures itself as a computer and that computer computes this virtual reality and we also are a piece of consciousness and we're the players in the virtual reality now every virtual reality has its own time because it depends on how detailed it is how much resolution do you need so every virtual reality it's being computed has its own clock you know you look in the world of warcraft you play that and within a couple of hours the sun comes up the sun goes down you know day goes to night comes back to day you know it sets its clock because of what the needs of the game are you know what the needs of the of the virtual reality are so we've got our own clock and that clock is just hours in this virtual reality so it's the our physical universe virtual reality clock and that generates time in our virtual reality the way simulations work is they have outer time loops so you compute everything and then stuff changes then you compute it again a delta t later and you you move things around based on you know where they were going and then another delta t you compute it again so we've got its delta t that basically drives time in our reality but now the consciousness itself remember we started off with this consciousness that uh, was just awareness uh with a choice and in the beginning before it evolved much it just had simple choice you know i could be in state a or state b state one or state zero that's all i can understand is state one and state zero but i got that and i understand that and i'd like to be in state one so i'm going to work on 
on that. So we had consciousness and then it was a one and a one and a zero and it, it found it could do patterns. And, you know, that was the evolution of it. So consciousness starts like that and has to grow, right? So all of this is natural evolution. So you just start with this very simple consciousness, you may even call it a consciousness cell, if you like, this little piece of consciousness. Now that's an assumption in my model. I start with an assumption that consciousness exists. Okay, so that is the consciousness that exists, this little cell. And then it starts to evolve. And eventually you end up with this larger consciousness system because it's lowered its entropy and become a very complex, capable system. It's come up with mathematics. It's come up with all sorts of things that allow it to be pretty sophisticated now in what it can do and what it can understand. So the point is that it's not easy to change yourself, to change who you are, to grow up, to lower your entropy. This entropy isn't a function of your behavior. It's not how you behave, it's how you are. It's what you are on the inside. You know, it's not your image, which is, runs your behavior, it's, it's inside of you. So to change that is something that is difficult to do. So you have to let these IUOCs play a lot of games. They can't just say, well, you got one game, pick an avatar, when that's over, it's over, you're done. You know, that doesn't make any sense. Avatars don't last all that long. You know, they have to abide the rule set. The rule set's the thing that ran, made the virtual reality come out the way it did. So you have to play this game iteratively. You have to play it. Your avatar dies. When your avatar dies, you kind of wake up again and uh, you go to another virtual reality, transition reality, where you get prepared to go back and get another avatar. And then you play another avatar and you have to play through all different kinds of avatars. So you get a very varied experience because that helps you grow up. So there's lots and lots of details I'm glossing over, but that free will awareness unit is, it's a subset of the individuated unit of consciousness and it takes just its quality. Now the quality of consciousness is a measure of the entropy of that consciousness. So low entropy consciousness is a high quality consciousness. So it takes that level of quality of that consciousness and it imparts that to this free will awareness unit. It gives it its quality, but it doesn't give it any of its facts. It doesn't give it any of its detailed information. So that free will awareness unit then logs on to this fetus, say, or child or whatever, it logs on and it starts experiencing things. And as far as it knows, every experience, you know, it's its first experience. Okay, it heard sound, it saw light go by while it was in utero, and that becomes its experience. So from its viewpoint, it believes it is that physical thing, because all of its experience has been from the start of that physical thing. It doesn't know anything else. So we think we are our bodies, because our experience started with that body. Now, when that, when that, uh, when that body dies, Okay, that partition, the free will awareness unit, and the individuated unit of consciousness, which was its parent, that partition comes down, and that entity is no longer the free will awareness unit entity. It's no longer Paul or Tom. It's back to its individuated unit of consciousness, and it's had 10,000 of these experiences. Ready for another one. Yeah. Yeah. And it gets ready. It gets ready for the next one. And it stops and thinks, well, what do I need to learn? How can I lower my entropy? Gee, I, I really have this problem with uh, anger management. I need to find something that'll let me get past that point, you know, and it can do some learning and some this and that and special cases. And, but anyway, so that's, you know, I call that a new experience packet. So it picks up a new experience packet 
and keeps picking that up. So that's basically what happens when you die. You wake up and you end up in another virtual reality that is basically to help you transition to the next lifetime. And that can be slow or that can be quick. It just depends on your needs and where you are and how much fear you have and your beliefs and all that stuff. But it's that kind of a cycle. So we as consciousness are immortal. We just keep growing. Our physical bodies, well, they're just avatars. They're computed. They're they're not immortal. They, they end and they're done. You know, you go compute something else. So that's the overall model. So the big picture, consciousness is fundamental. Consciousness is the thing that exists. Everything else is a subset of consciousness, including this virtual reality. Now, with that comes an important thing. We'll get back to the double slit. And that is a virtual reality, if you tried to compute it from the bottom up, Okay, from elementary particles to particles to atoms to molecules to chunky stuff that we can sense, you know, doing that, starting from the bottom and working up, that's crazy. That's impossible. I shouldn't say it's impossible, but it takes huge amount of computer time and it's very time consuming. That would be but calculating every quantum particle everything. in yeah, the universe every all the time. Bottoms yeah. up. Yeah, you got to track all this stuff. So that's a silly idea. So no computer system would, would do a model like that. Okay, the model we would do would be more like no man's time, right? It's a probability based model, so much more efficient. And because you've got the rule set, you can generate the probability distributions really, really accurately. So you have a probability model. Now, the thing that you get from a uh, bottoms up, uh, what do we call it, material causality model, is that you get what happens next, because what happens next just depends on what happened before it, hmm. right? That materialistic is a deterministic thing. If you know all the states of everything, then you can calculate what the next one is. And if you know that, you can calculate the next one is. That's why physicists end up as <laughs> from materialist to determinists to saying silly things like time and consciousness and free will don't exist. That all comes out of that, that trap. They've painted themselves into a corner there. So that tells them what's going to happen next. But now in a, in a probabilistic model, you don't have that telling you what's going to happen next. There is no you know, trail of material uh, you know, accountability through, through choice and through the rule set. So what you do is that you look at anything new, any new information, anytime somebody makes a measurement that they, nobody's made before or whatever, anything new, and you say, well, what's that going to be? You take a probability distribution of the possibilities and then take a random draw out of that probability distribution. Now, that's not just a random draw out of the possibilities. It's a random draw out of the probability distribution of the possibilities. That means you're more likely to get the things that have higher probabilities. But you can get things that are way out on the curve of, you know, possibilities and probabilities. So that's what happens next. All right. So how does that work here in this world? Let's say, for instance, let's come up with something new. You go out in your backyard and you get a shovel and you dig a hole. What's new is going to be what's in the hole. You don't know. You've never dug that up before, yeah. you know, and, and uh, maybe, you know, you don't know that that was landfill before you got there. But anyways, you don't know, so you dig it up. Well, could be a gold doubloon if you live down there the Gulf Coast. You know, you could be a, a dinosaur bone, or it could just be dirt, or rocks, or roots. 
But whatever it is, every time a new measurement's made, which is you lift up another pile of that dirt, the system has to put something there. It has to render something there in the virtual reality. And what it renders there is a random draw from a probability distribution of the possibilities. Another example, I get this telescope. This telescope can look further than any telescope's ever looked before. We just went through one of those moments not that long ago. And we're going to get a telescope, and it's going to look 10 times further than anyone has ever looked before. And when I look there, how does the system know what to put there? Well, there's a lot of possibilities, and those possibilities are constrained by what we already know. Right? There has to be stuff that we know, kind of the stuff that could be there. We already know some of the stuff because we've seen it through our other telescopes. So within those possibilities, and there may be a thousand possibilities, some are more probable than others. Take a random draw, and that's what's there. And that's what that physicist says. He says, ah, here's my picture. Here's what I saw. And from then on, that becomes a part of this reality. It comes into the reality, just like if your elf goes and... Uh, you know, does something, digs a hole, knocks over a tree, or does something, finds something new, then that new stuff is there for everybody. Everybody else that plays that game will find that rock, you know, that that guy found the first time. So once something comes into the reality, it stays into the reality. New stuff comes in by this random draw from a probability distribution of the possibilities. Now, that gets us back to quantum physics. Okay, this is a probabilistic model. That makes it efficient to compute. All you need to do is understand what the probability distributions are. But hey, we got that covered because we got the rule set, which makes how everything works. We know how everything works because we have the rule set. So we can come up with some really good probability distributions. So probabilistic model is hugely efficient. And you have this particle in a double slit experiment. So what happens? Where does that particle go? Okay, I got a particle. It just went through one of the slits. Nobody's measuring the slits. It's going to have to land someplace. Where's it going to land? Well, because I know that if it lands in a uh, interference pattern, I will have not created a conflict with wave physics, uh, with optics. Yep. If it lands anyplace else, I'm going to have a, a conflict because I also know that those particles, those uh, photons, do not interact with each other. So the fact that uh, you shine a flashlight through that, and that's an optics experiment, and they make a wave pattern, and then you send them through one at a time, uh, doesn't make any difference. They don't interact with each other. you got to get the same answer. So what do I do? I say, well, I'll take that wave pattern, and that's my probability distribution. And here comes one. I'm going to take a random draw from that probability distribution, and I'm going to put him right there. And when I'm done, it's going to be a wave pattern. Okay, And all of quantum physics works that way. This big mystery, the wave function collapses to a physical particle. You know, that's magic, right? That's not science. That's magic. Nobody knows what that means. It's a metaphor, and the physicists don't understand it. But all it is is it's a random draw from a probability distribution of the possibilities, and that's how our reality gets put together. Things that come into the reality stay in the reality. So now you have quantum physics understood, and you can go back through all of quantum physics and other physics too, and look at all the paradoxes that they have, things that, that they know exist because of experiments, but they don't have any idea why they're that way, and all of them fall out with obvious 
explanations. And there is no weird physics. Quantum physics isn't a weird physics. It's a logical physics just like any other piece of physics or any other piece of science. It's logic-based. And of course, scientists knew that in their deep heart of hearts anyway, because all of science is logic-based. They just didn't understand the logic that made this one work. Well, the perspective that makes that work is that consciousness is fundamental and that we are players playing avatars within a virtual reality called the physical universe inside of consciousness. Consciousness is the computer. With that perspective, suddenly a whole boat full of things make sense. And not just in physics, but it settles problems in biology, in sociology, in psychology, in philosophy, in metaphysics, you know, ontology about being, epistemology about knowledge, cosmology, all of those things where you had these big arguments. Oh, what's the meaning of life? Why are we here? Well, why is love everything? You know, why, why, yeah, is, why, why is love the answer? Yeah, why yeah. are we all work? Yeah, you know, so you have all these big questions and bang, the answers. Bang, 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 bang. Everyone has a rational answer now that uh, just makes perfect sense and explains the experiments that are right now gone, you know, uh, unexplainable. They're paradoxes. So, so the model, so the model works. So to kind of uh, bring this to a close, I think you've explained it very well. It's a huge thing to explain quickly because you're, ex you're explaining the history basically of everything that we've ever known. But um, back to the the title, Toe Theory of Everything, that has to explain everything, doesn't it? It's not yes. just enough to explain what looked like the physics. You have to explain things using that model, like why the Beatles were so popular, for example, which is yes, at the complete other end of the spectrum of any physics explanation. Exactly. Well, one of the things you end up with is a also, a, you know, you end up with a complete new and, and much better, much more general and much more accurate uh, model for the objective reality. So, you know, objective world has now the science that's much better than the old science that explains things much better. You also get a science of the subjective world. And mm -hmm. that's why were the Beatles so popular? Why, you know, why do you go home and cry? You know, why are people struggling all the times with their lives? Why do they get so upset? You know, why is the teenage suicide rate going up? So there's also a science and you can look at all the explanations for why all that stuff happens. And it's all there. And it's science, and it's not, well, nobody knows what's going on inside, you know, somebody's mind. Well, that's not the point, but you know how consciousness works. You know its point, you, you know how it functions, and you know that there's only two big poles here. One's love, the other's fear. And you can explain, you know, you can take a hundred of those individual entries in the psychiatric book of disorders, all of them, you can say, well, that's fear, and that's fear, and they're all fear. Yeah, yeah. You can understand every one of them as fear-based. Well, it's an easy thing. So suddenly, order that you didn't have before, understanding, the way things pull together, you know, the way the piece parts all hang together in a whole, that all becomes obvious with this big toe. And it really is a big toe, not a little toe. A little toe would just unite relativity and quantum physics. But, you know, this is really everything. 
all of our actions, all of our subjective world as well as our objective world. You know, the other big mystery, you know, is why should speed of light be a constant? Why should that be a constant? You know, if the source of light is going fast and then the light turns on, it still just goes the speed of light. It doesn't go the something plus the speed of the source of it. You know, so it's just a constant. Nothing in our, else in our reality is like that. Well, it's easy. In a virtual reality, you've got a grid, delta X, delta Y, delta Z, and delta T, right? And as fast as you can go through a virtual reality from contiguously without teleporting is one pixel of distance for one pixel of time. That's yep. C. And that's one pixel of distance, which is the Planck length divided by one pixel of time. That's the Planck time. And you get the speed of light. You see, that's... <laughs> That's simple. <laughs> it's simple. Speed of light's a constant. You know, it's digital. It can't go any quicker than that. You have to go one pixel at a time. You can't skip from this pixel. Let's skip 20 pixels over. Well, now you're teleporting. And now your reality's kind of squirrely and it doesn't make sense. And the rule set gets weird. And it's not a good reality for a, a learning lab like this is. You know, a place to grow up needs to be a place you can depend on so that you know that you know, the reactions I get from my behavior are because of my behavior, not because the reality is, is squirrely. So that's, yeah. that explains, you know, why the speed of light's a constant. And it explains why the speed of light has little variations out in the eighth and ninth decimal place sometimes. That's because our resolution needs to change sometimes. But it's digital. And because it's digital, you can't make the ratio of delta X over delta T be exactly the same because... You can't split pixels. You can get as close as you can, yeah. Yeah. but you can't split pixels. So it's going to be off a little bit and off a little bit. And when you see just where is that? Okay, let's say that's in the ninth decimal place. That tells you what our resolution is. Our standard, the resolution that we live by, you know, it's not Planck length and Planck time. That's way too small. The computer doesn't want to waste all those bits, you know, computing things to that level when we can't even see it or feel it or know it. So you know, it's really at about eight decimal places or nine decimal places is where our is where our uh, how we're being computed now. But if we need more, it'll give us more. If we need less, it may give us less. It's a smart computer. So that's the idea. Consciousness yeah. is everything. And that idea was called idealism back in Plato's time. And since then, has had a lot of very impressive uh, adherents that have uh, kind of argued that case. But now, once we got to the double slit, it was a fact. You know, that is the way it works. And the only way to make idealism actually function is to come to the conclusion that consciousness is fundamental. So most of the idealists will agree consciousness is fundamental, but then they don't really understand how to take that and turn it into a science that shows where our world came from, why we're here, what we're doing here, and how everything works, and what in the hell's going on with when the wave function collapses to a, you know, to a particle. How does that work? So it solves all those, you know, why C is a constant. It just solves all those problems. And, that's what uh, that's what attracted me to what you had to say because it had a basis in well, you know, I say science. So it, it's kind of bigger than that, but it didn't require big leaps of faith to get to the core of what you're saying it sort of made sense from an analytical and, yeah. and scientific point of view it's yeah yeah it's all logic no no i don't logic, have yeah. any i don't have any jumps in here and any crazy assumptions or anything it's just the the one assumption consciousness exists and you know that was that was where uh, descartes got right you know he he decided 
that he would, you know, famous French philosopher I'm talking about, he decided he wanted to find out what was real. And, and he thought about all these things. He said, no, that could be an illusion. That, not, not, that, that. And what did he end up with? He finally, at the end of his investigation, found out that the only thing that he knew was real was that he existed. Yeah. That he thought and that he existed. There isn't. So when he looked at the world, he came to the right conclusion. What exists? Consciousness. And that's it. Consciousness and, is fundamental. And I think we all have a sense of that, don't we? I mean, we're, we, we do. are aware of our conscious being and uh, our conscience and everything. And, and it kind of talks to us and we have dialogues and we all know it's there. You know, we, we all do. know that, li that life is more than just the stuff. Right? Yep. It's, not, it's not just the material stuff. You know, we're the actors on the stage. Okay, the stage and the props, that's all the stuff. But that's not the most important stuff. The most important thing going on isn't the stuff. The most important thing going on is the love, the caring, the relationships, the connections, you know, truth, beauty, love, caring, charity, you know, fairness, all those things. That's what's really important. The stuff on the stage, you know, where all the rocks and bushes are, isn't that important? The physical environment, our physical bodies, the physical stuff is just the props. And everybody kind of has a sense that life really is more than just me, you know, in a world of stuff, how much stuff can I accumulate? You know, that's the only thing that's important. Most people realize that's a bankrupt path. The other thing we have an intuitive sense, a notion about is that we're here to lower our entropy. Everybody kind of has a sense that we need to do better. We, we're here to grow up to somehow, you know, what's the meaning of life? I don't know, but I know the meaning is to be better. It's to advance. So we have this sense of, of what we're here to do is to evolve, evolve the quality of our consciousness, evolve who we are, become something more than what we are now. And we do that by making choices. We evolve or de-evolve by the choices we make. We make high entropy choices or we make low entropy choices. Low entropy choices leave the world in a more low entropy spot because of the choice. High entropy choices leave the world in a more high entropy spot. We've got the philosophy. What's, uh, what's the difference between good and evil? What's bad? Is that just relative? Oh, some people think burping's bad after dinner and other people, you know, that's important. Well, the point is, what's good and bad is depends on entropy. If the act lowers entropy in the long run for self and for everybody else, you know, for the system and for the individual, then that's a good thing. If the entropy is raised, for the individual in the system over the long run, that's a bad thing. So suddenly right and wrong becomes, Makes a, sense. Yeah. becomes a, a, an entropy measurement. And you can write a moral code that'll tell you what the moral thing to do is in any situation. And all the moral codes that have been written, like Spinoza probably had one of the better ones, but they all have flaws. Because you always can come up with a situation that says, yeah, but if this is the situation, the code just doesn't apply, does it? And it doesn't. But the point is that morality is not tagged to action. It's tagged to intent. So well, that gets things. me back to the, my first comment. And that's what I think happened when I asked that question. I, <laughs> yeah. I asked it with the appropriate intent. And you request information. It's like my computer. You know, I, I wanted some yeah. information. I really wanted it, actually, not just passing. I, I, I wanted it. And information was delivered.
<laughs> exactly. And it was Information you. was delivered. It's, and that is the way it works. So that's kind of the big picture. And indeed, it is a, a big toe. It answers everything from individual choice and why some people are miserable and, and why some are so ugly. And, you know, if you can evolve and you have free will, well, you can make bad choices, too. You can de-evolve and continue to de-evolve. And no, there's no punishment for that. You're not going to go burn and have people stick you with pitchforks. The punishment for that is that one day you're going to have to turn around and go the other direction. And now you've just created a big hole for yourself that you're going to have to, you're going to, have to grow out of. So uh, it covers everything. That's the, uh, that's the idea. But it's such an outlandish, crazy idea that this is a virtual reality. My body is an avatar and I'm a piece of consciousness that's, that's playing the avatar. That's such a wild idea that people just throw it away out of hand because it conflicts with their beliefs. And most people have a belief in, in uh, materialism. And it's not because somebody taught them to believe that. It's just in our culture. It's part of our culture. Yeah. yeah? And culture is another thing it explains. You know, cultures change. And sociologists have no idea why they change the way they change. Sometimes they change fast. Sometimes they don't. And why? They don't know. But culture is just collective consciousness. So there's another big mystery solved. You know, it's collective consciousness. So anyway, there's millions of details I've skipped. No, I know, and, and we probably need to come back another couple of times. I think what you've done, though, is give a, a really amazing overview of the theory of everything, which has to include everything. That's the bar that you've got to get over. Anyone yeah. has to get over in, in claiming that they've got a, a toe, well, a big toe in this case. And uh, I think you've given our listeners so much to think about. You've certainly given me a lot to think about over the years. I want to thank you for that. And, um, and taking the time to explain that to our, our audience. It's, it's great to have you be able to do that. So thanks for your time. Well, you're quite welcome. If your audience is interested in more stuff, you probably have some things down under your, your bar that has that. But uh, I've got thousands and thousands of hours, you know, in, in YouTube. And yeah. I've, got the, I've got the trilogy. And uh, if you bounce around a bit, I do some events, places. Matter of fact, I've been to... You know, to Australia, New Zealand. I was there, uh, gave a talk there uh, a couple of years back. Yeah, and I, I couldn't make it to that. I was thinking about it, but uh, circumstances didn't allow yeah. the time, but yeah. I was aware of that. So there's plenty of, yeah, of plenty places of stuff. people can go. Yeah, yeah, out there. Well, thank you, Paul. I appreciate you inviting me on and giving me an opportunity to help uh, explain this to other people because it really is a life-changing understanding. It Once is. you get it, it, uh, it makes a huge difference in how you live your life because it's not just about the stuff. It's about all those other choices that, that you have that are really more important than the stuff. And it tells you, it shows, you know, up from down, right from wrong, what works and what doesn't and why. Yeah. So it's a life changer. Tom Campbell, physicist and author of the trilogy, My Big Toe, My Theory of Everything. Thanks again. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.